Jesus, we thank you for bringing us together, for getting us here safely. Lord, um, God, I pray that we would see your sovereignty uh, in the little things, um, even in us being here right now. Lord, that you call us to places to speak things to us, to get things across to us, God. And sometimes it's it's easy for us to, to forget that, Lord, but we know that you brought us to this place to hear something from you, God. So I pray that each and every one of us would hear from the living God, that we'd walk away uh, here um, with something, whether it's encouragement or conviction or um, just a newfound revelation, whatever you want us to have, God, I pray that we would be open to receiving it. So please uh, anoint us all with your spirit and guide us in your truth. In your name, amen. All right. Uh, if you recall, we've been in Second uh, Samuel, got through First Samuel uh, about a couple months ago now. Uh, and if you remember in Second Samuel chapter five, that long-awaited promise that God made to David that he would become king of Israel, well, that promise was finally fulfilled, and God's kingdom was established on earth through His king for the first time in history. Amazing how God blessed the kingdom of David. We see it continue to prosper and we'll see the kingdom of David prosper even as we look into this chapter and the next. But when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you were with us last week, David, he decides to take over Jerusalem and make it basically a centralized place of worship for all the Israelites. Well, there was one significant thing that was missing from Jerusalem at that time. Anybody remember what it was? The Ark of the Covenant, right? They needed the Ark of the Covenant back because they had the tabernacle, but the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, but it wasn't there. It was left with this people group way back about 70 years before this during Samuel's time. So David, if you recall, he goes to get the Ark of the Covenant and he didn't go about it the right way. His heart was in the right place, but he didn't do it the right way. He didn't read the instruction manual, if you will. And it ended up costing this guy his life. You remember Uzzah, he tries to protect the ark from falling on the threshold and the Lord just zaps him dead right there. But it wasn't that God didn't want David to have the ark. It wasn't that he didn't want him to have the desires of his heart. He just wanted him to go about it a certain way. He wanted him to go about it by the book, if you will, by the word of God. And we see David did that. He got back in the word. He understood how God wanted him to handle the ark. And the Lord blessed him doing it God's way. And he was able to bring the ark back to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Now, in this chapter, we'll look at... A very specific, very particular, very powerful covenant that God makes with David. And this covenant is referred to as the Davidic covenant. And that's the title of this teaching. The Davidic covenant. Simple. That's really what it is. That's what this whole chapter is about. Now this covenant, there are, there are books and books written about this covenant. We're going to talk about it, uh, in, in less than an hour now. But when you look at the Davidic covenant, it's important for us to look at some of the previous promises that God made. If you recall in the beginning, way back in Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise to the serpent. 
He made a promise to Satan. He promised Satan that the seed of the woman would crush his head. That was a promise. Later on, we see this promise elaborated on further with Abraham, right? God said, I'm going to bless the nations through your seed. Then, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, to Jacob to Judah, elaborated further, the scepter will not depart from Judah. From the tribe of Judah, Jesse, from Jesse comes David. And now we're going to see this promise that has been built upon and built upon and built upon for so many years be built upon even further. And we're going to see this covenant promise that God makes to David is essentially that Messiah will come through his lineage. Jesus is the fulfillment of his promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. He's the seed of the woman, not the seed of man, because he didn't come from man. He came from a woman. He's the seed of the woman that crushes the serpent's head. He's the one, the seed of Abraham, through whom the nations would be blessed. In Jesus, the scepter would not depart. In Jesus, we'll see through the Davidic covenant, his kingdom will be established forever. Let's look at the text, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. So we see during this time period that David is dwelling in his house in Jerusalem. He's dwelling. He's right where God wants him. And because he's right where God wants him, look what happens. It says that God... He had given him rest from all his enemies all around. He's exactly right in the center of the will of God. He has rest. He has peace. And this is so true. When we're in the center of God's will, we'll have rest. We'll have peace. That doesn't mean that there won't be spiritual warfare. That doesn't mean that there won't be storms. But even when storms come, we can have peace within the storms. David is in a place of rest. He's in a place of peace because he's doing exactly what God was asking him to do. So David, he has this conversation with Nathan the prophet. And he says, you know what? God lives in a tent and I lived in this house made of cedar. See, David telling us that he lives in a house of cedar Let's us know that David had a very nice palace. See, uh, wood was rare, especially in Israel. And cedar wood, specifically, it came from Lebanon. And it was a very, very special type of wood. So David, his house is the best of the best. It's the cream of the crop. Okay, nicest neighborhood, nicest house you could think of. And God is dwelling in a tent, meaning the tabernacle. So... David, he looks at the house that God is dwelling in and he says, my house is better than God's. My house is prettier than God's. It's made a better quality than God's house. But see, I don't think David and God had the same perspective about this. Why? 
Because the tabernacle was what God asked the Israelites to build. And in fact, it says in Exodus chapter 38, if you want to write it down, Exodus chapter 38, verse 43, that the Israelites built the tabernacle exactly the way that God instructed. One of the few times the Israelites were completely obedient, but they were to build the tabernacle. This is exactly the type of house that God wanted to live in. See, it represented God well. The tabernacle moved from place to place. It wasn't bound to a place. God, he moved from place to place. And if you remember, he guided the Israelites through the through uh, the wilderness with the pillar of fire by day and the cloud by night. And the pillar of fire or the cloud would depart from the tabernacle. It would move forward. Then the Levites would pack up the tabernacle. They would follow the Lord. So the tabernacle, it represents God on so many different levels. But David thinks it's not good enough for God. See, sometimes our perspective isn't the same as God's perspective. And we think, oh, I dwell in this little tent. Or this isn't good enough for me. Or this isn't even good enough for God. God says, no, it's perfect for you. It's perfect for me. I don't need this fabulous temple, this fabulous palace. The tabernacle is what I asked to be built for me. So Nathan and David, they continue on in this conversation, if you would, in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. Then Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Initially, Nathan's like, great idea. I agree. The, the tabernacle has been around for a long time. It's probably a little shabby at this point, to say the least. God deserves something better. So everything that's in your heart, Dave, just go and do it. Yes, build God a temple. But we're going to see this is not what God wanted. And God's not going to allow David to build the temple. Nathan, being a prophet, a spiritual man, he told David, do that all that's in your heart. But this thing that was in David's heart, it wasn't from the Lord. Don't do all that's in your heart. <laughs> Don't do all that's in your heart if it's not from the Lord. You might say, wait, I thought God will give us the desires of our heart. When we delight ourselves in him, he'll give us the desires of our heart. And that means when I align my heart with his heart, we'll have the same heart. And, and then, yeah, what I want is what God wants. And what God wants is what I want, not my will, but yours be done. And yeah, when our desires are aligned with God's heart, then do the desires of your heart. But if the desires of your heart aren't aligned with God's, then don't. How do you know? You got to pray. You got to seek the Lord. It's easy for us to want to do great things for God, but they're not great things for God if they're not of God. And I've seen this so many different times. I'll get people uh, and they'll have this uh, emotional uh, desire in their heart to do something good for God, this vision apparently, maybe that they had, maybe that they didn't. But it was just emotion and it wasn't really vision or direction from the Lord. It was the desire of their heart and not the desire of the Lord's heart. And they'll continue on this path. They'll try to build up this vision that they believe is from the Lord. But they didn't take the time to run it by God. To, to see if it was actually for him, from Him. And you know what happens? Those visions typically crumble because they're not from the Lord. See, we can desire to do great things from God. But if God doesn't desire us to do those things, then they're not great things for God. David has this great desire, but it's not the Lord's desire. Look what happens. It's Second Samuel chapter 7. 
verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. God says, I don't dwell in houses. I don't dwell in temples. If you were with us on Sunday, several weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 7, and we see Stephen, he says a very similar thing. They accused him of committing blasphemy against the temple, and he makes the same point that God is making here. In Acts chapter 7, uh, if you would with me, I could read it for you, uh, verse 38, 48, sorry, it says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? God wasn't asking for a temple. He doesn't dwell in temples. Other gods during that time dwelt in temples. Okay, I don't know of any other gods that dwelt in tabernacles. They could have. I just don't know about it. Other gods dwelt in temples. They were false gods. They were idols. They offered nothing. God's not like other gods. He doesn't need a temple. But not only does this reveal to us that God is omnipresent or or all-present. He's not bound to a specific place. This also reveals a character quality of God. Think about it. God had the Israelites build a a tabernacle or a tent, if you will, while they were in the wilderness going from place to place. And where were the, uh, the Israelites dwelling? They were dwelling in tents as well. God says, if my people are going to dwell in a tent, I'm going to dwell in a tent. If my people are going to travel through the wilderness, I'm going to travel through the wilderness with them. See, God, he wants to identify with his people. Though he's far greater than us, he comes down and he meets us with we're at if you're going through this thing i want to go through this thing with you it's a picture of jesus it says in philippians chapter 2 verse 5 in philippians 2 5 it says being in the form of man he did not consider it robbery to be equal with god jesus was fully god and fully man literally god said this in other words my people are dwelling in tents of human flesh i'm gonna come and dwell in a tent of human flesh i'm gonna be tempted in all ways like they are I'm going to identify with my people. Though I'm above them, I'm going to relate to them. I'm going to come down to them. There's so much to the tabernacle, but part of it was God relating to his people. He says, I dwelt in the tabernacle. I didn't dwell in a temple. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 7. Wherever I've, uh, wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Again, God is saying, I never told anyone to build me a temple. David, if you look at the word of God, I never told anyone I want a temple to dwell in. I said, I wanted a tabernacle. 
So what makes you think that I want you to build me a temple? False gods are bowed by temples. God is not bound by a temple. You know what this does to me? It makes me wonder if there was ever supposed to be a temple. Now, I won't say that there was never supposed to be a temple because we're going to see that God gives Solomon permission ultimately to build the temple. But play this out with me. And there's arguments on both sides. Some people believe that the te- there was never supposed to be a temple. Um, I can't say that for sure. It's really hard to tell from the text because God permits it. But God, he also permitted the Israelites to have a king. The king of their choice, King Saul, right? He gave it to him, but he didn't want him to have it. And he told him there's going to be bad things that happen. Now, he doesn't tell him bad things are going to happen with the temple. But what ends up happening to the temple? Gets destroyed by the Babylonians. They resurrect it. They build it again, right? Then what happens? Gets destroyed by the Romans, right? Now there's no temple. Guess what's going to happen to the next temple? The Antichrist is going to come and sit on the throne, commit the abomination of desolation, demand to be worshipped as God. So you look at some of that and you go, I wonder if God actually ever wanted them to really build him a temple or if they he was just giving them the desire of their heart. It's hard to tell in the text. I kind of lean towards the middle. What I don't know, I can't say, but it makes me curious. I never told you to build me a temple, he says. Second Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. He says, I I took you from being a sheep And I made you into a shepherd, the ruler over all of my people. God truly took David from humble beginnings and and he exalted him. David humbled himself. God exalted him. See, too often people want to jump right into being a shepherd or, or jump right into that position of prominence, that position of power, that position of authority. But it doesn't work like that. You can't understand or learn how to be a shepherd if you don't know how to be a sheep. See, we're the Lord's sheep, and he's the good shepherd. If I don't know how to be a sheep to the good shepherd, then I have no business being a shepherd. But so so often, people want to skip the sheep part. I want to be my own shepherd, and I want to shepherd other people, but I don't want to be shepherd. I don't want anyone to shepherd me. It's like, no, 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 that's backwards. That's not how it works. Jesus says, I take you from the sheepfold, and then I put you into this position. You need to learn how to be a sheep. You need to learn how to hear my voice voice and that's exactly what david did as a young boy tending to his father's sheep the text continues second samuel chapter 7 verse 10 moreover i will appoint a place for my people israel and will plant them and they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that i commanded judges to be over my people israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies also the lord tells you that he will make you a house 
He says, first, in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people. God did from the beginning, if we look back to Exodus chapter 15, verse 7, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 7, God intended on providing a specific location for his people. It's Exodus chapter 15, verse 17, sorry. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. See, the Lord, he promised the Israelites the promised land all along, right? From from back to Abraham's time. He promised the promised land. Even though Abraham didn't have any possession of the land, God said, all of this land is going to be given to your descendants. So we see that God was trying to bring his people to this centralized location. Jerusalem ends up being the capital, the sanctuary, if you will, of Israel. But this doesn't just connect to the promised land that God promised the Israelites. This connects to the eternal promised land. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 1. John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, he says, I I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you to dwell in, in other words. There are many mansions there. See, God prepares a place for his people. That's what Jesus is doing right now. Literally, the eternal promised land. This promise isn't just about the promised land, Israel. This is about the eternal promise that Jesus gave us, that he's going to prepare a place for us. He's in the process as we speak. And then look what God says. No, David... You're not going to build me a house. Look at verse 11. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. You're not building me a house. I'm going to build you a house. This is a picture of grace, right? It's a picture of the gospel. It's not about what you do for me. It's about what I'm going to do for you. It's not about your works. It's about my work on the cross. See, God said, no, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to build you a place. I'm going to build you a house. Now, he's not talking about an actual building. We already read that David has a house, right? He has a house made of cedar. He doesn't need a nicer house. He's speaking of his lineage, his dynasty. I'm going to make your lineage. I'm going to bless your dynasty. David's lineage, we see, ultimately fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. And this whole text has messianic implications. Jesus would be the house. He would be the dynasty. He would eventually, as we'll mention in a bit, be the ruler, the one whose kingdom is established forever. God says, in other words, I'm going to build you a more glorious house than you'll ever build me. (laughs) There's no way you can build me the type of glorious house that I'm going to build you. And this is fulfilled if you look in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, through the person of Jesus Christ. It says, the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. Again, God. He became flesh. He put on human skin, a human tent, if you will. 
He's the rock. He's the cornerstone of the entire building. And God says, yes, I'm going to make you a house. This is the fulfillment of that. It's through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, later on, we'll see, if you want to write this down, in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 8 to 10, I won't read it. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 8 to 10, uh, we see uh, some clarity as to why God wouldn't uh, help David or allow David to build a house, right? Why was it? He had too much blood on his hands, right? He killed way too many people, tens of thousands of people. And we'll see even more in chapter 80, slaughters a bunch of people groups. So you, say, you have too much blood on your hands. I'm not going to allow you to build the temple. The text continues, Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seat after you. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He says, when your days are fulfilled, or in other words, when you die, okay? That's point number one. Death cannot annul God's covenant. Death cannot annul God's covenant. He says, David, even when you die, this promise will still be fulfilled. Just because you die doesn't mean that the promise is no longer in effect because this promise isn't just for you. This promise is for your lineage to bless all the nations of the earth. Again, the fulfillment of this promise is fulfilled through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And same holds true for that covenant. That death does not annul it. Jesus says in John chapter 11... In John chapter 11, verse 25, he says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? When we enter into God's covenant, the new covenant, Jesus says, though you die, if you believe this, you will live. (laughs) You'll never really die. Your body might die. Your spirit will live forever. See, under this covenant, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, death doesn't make the covenant cease from existing. Rather, death ushers in the covenant. (laughs) It's when we die that we actually get to experience the fullness of this covenant that God made with David. And he also tells him, if you look back at verse 12, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Who's he talking about? Well, it's technically talking about two people. It's talking about Solomon. He would establish Solomon's kingdom. Solomon will be the next king. We'll see Solomon will be the one that builds the temple and God um, allows him to do this. But obviously Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. Just as when God said to Abraham, I'll bless the nations through your seed, singular, not through your people, the Jews, but through your seed. Paul tells us in Galatians, he was referring to seed singular, Jesus Christ. The same holds true here. The true fulfillment of this, though Abraham had Isaac, that was a seed. Jesus was the seed that the nations would be blessed through. He says, when your days are fulfilled, even though you die, I will set up your seed. 
or another translation says, I will raise up your seed. Though David will die, his seed would be raised. Though Jesus dies, he, he would be raised from the dead. He would resurrect. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will, obviously, like I mentioned, he says he'll build a house for my name. Speaking of Solomon, he will allow Solomon uh, to build that temple. But when he says, establish my kingdom forever, he's talking about Jesus. Solomon didn't have an eternal kingdom. Jesus will have an eternal kingdom. And we actually see even bits and pieces of this throughout the Bible. Namely, let's look at Daniel chapter 7. We see this individual coming who will have this eternal kingdom. It's all throughout the Bible, but this is just one of my favorite passages. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man, this is speaking of Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That's why Jesus says, when they say, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? He says, I am, and you will see the son of man coming at the right hand of the power, coming in the clouds of heaven. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of this. I'm the one that's going to establish an eternal kingdom. Though you kill me, I'll come back and I'll establish my kingdom here on this earth. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. I will be his father... And he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Well, God does refer to people as his son, right? We're sons of the living God. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ, believes in the gospel. Bible says we become children of God, sons and daughters. But there are, in this text... He's speaking of both Solomon and Jesus. There's a son of God and there's the son of God, right? I'm a son of God, but Jesus is the son of God. He says, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him. This is the second point. Sin cannot destroy God's covenant. Sin cannot destroy God's covenant. Look, look at what he said. He didn't say, if he commits iniquity... The deal's off. He didn't say that. He says that sometimes in other passages. You have conditional covenants that God made, like how he made through the law. If you do righteously, uh, if you if you walk in my law, if you keep my commandments, then you'll be blessed. That was a conditional covenant of God. And then there are unconditional co- covenants of God, like the covenant he made with Abraham, like the covenant he made with David. In other words, you can't mess up this promise. You cannot mess up this promise. If he, the son, commits iniquity. Well, we know the son didn't commit iniquity, but we know David's son committed iniquity. Solomon actually committed horrific sin. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, I'll summarize it for you. In 1 Kings chapter 11, it's basically like the first 12 verses. We see that Solomon did something forbidden. 
He married a woman who wasn't an Israelite. Well, it started with Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, I'm going to marry this woman from this nation and this woman from this nation so that the surrounding nations and us can have peace treaties so that we can be at peace in all his wisdom. That's what he thought was the best thing to do. I'm going to marry all these different women. I'm going to be unequally yoked. But instead of in his attempts to protect Israel from the outside enemies, he brought enemies inside to Israel through the form of idolatry. It says in 1 Kings chapter 11 that his wives turned his heart away from God. Literally, his wives and their idolatry, he fell into it and he walked away from the Lord. So much so that because of that, he says later on in 1 Kings chapter 11, God says, because you've committed this sin and you're worshiping idols and you have walked away from me. I'm going to give the kingdom over to your servant, but it's going to happen after you die. The point is Solomon was a sinner, yet this promise still stands. God says, even though I know Solomon's going to sin, I'm still going to be faithful to follow through with my promise. See, our sin cannot destroy the promise that God made to us for eternal life. No matter how badly we sin, we cannot destroy the promise that God made to us. If we're true believers, we're walking with the Lord, we have that relationship. No amount of sin in the world will God say, promise is off. The deal is off. The promise of salvation, it's an unconditional covenant. Sometimes we can fall into that trap when we slip up, that we condemn ourselves and we say, man, I'm probably not even saved anymore. I'm not even, like what I did, I'm probably not even saved. Now, let me preface this by saying, yes, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. But if we have ever been saved at one point in our life, we're always saved. We're saved from her. As soon as we accept Jesus Christ in our life, he comes and lives inside of us. The promise is solidified in that moment. It cannot be broken. There's nothing we can do to break it. In Romans chapter 5 verse 20, in Romans chapter 5 verse 20, it says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. <laughs> where sin abounds, grace abounds more. More sin, more grace. Now that doesn't mean, should we continue to sin so that grace can abound? He says right after that in chapter 6 verse 1, certainly not, but the reality of it is, when God makes a promise to us, specifically the promise of salvation, our sin can't even get in the way of it. Now, sometimes we feel like it will. Why? Because the Bible says to keep yourself in the love of God. And when I sin and step outside of the love of God, I start thinking all these lies. I start meditating on all these different things. I start condemning myself. Oh, God doesn't love me anymore. Yada, yada, yada. Woe is me. But none of it's true. Hey, I made a promise to you. I'm going to keep it. Your sin can't ruin it. God's grace is greater than our sin. So he tells David, even though your son's going to mess up, the promise will still stand. He can't screw up this promise. How great is that? We can't screw up the promise of God. But he does say this, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. He will discipline Solomon. He's going to give the kingdom over to his servant afterwards, at least the northern kingdom. And we see the other kings from the tribe of Judah, he chastens them, he disciplines them when they're not walking rightly. 
But specifically speaking of Solomon, remember, as he wrote Proverbs, he said this in Proverbs chapter 3, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Look at verse 11, context. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is Solomon. Why does he know this? Because he's been chastened by the Lord. He know God. He knows God still loves him. He knows his promise still stands. He knows he's not going to go back on that promise that he made to his father, even when he screws up, even when he falls short. But he recognizes God disciplines me because he loves me. Not because he hates me, but because he loves me. And you know what? When God disciplines us, it's evidence that we've received the promise. It's evidence that we've received the promise. He says, hey, you're, if you don't receive discipline, you're not a legitimate son or daughter. You receive discipline. That means you are a son or daughter. Once a son or daughter, always a son or daughter. So Solomon Though he was disciplined by the Lord, he recognized God's love for him. Because this was part of the promise. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him. That is part of it. If you get off the right path, there's going, a wrong path, sorry, there is going to be discipline. We can't confuse the discipline of the Lord with the abandonment of God. He doesn't abandon us just because he disciplines us, walks us through hard seasons. Again, it's evidence that we've received the promise. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So this covenant is different than, than what he did with Saul, right? He told Saul that uh, through Samuel that he would be king. He says, my mercy shall not depart from him. Solomon, like it did from Saul. But this holds true to all the sons and daughters of the Lord. His mercy won't depart from us, right? His mercies are new every single morning. Every time we wake up, we get a do-over. Day in and day out, forgiven once again. His mercy will not depart from us. This isn't just a, his mercies are new every morning. His mercy is eternal. It lasts forever. So much so later on, Paul will say, He says, we're not subjected to the wrath of God. If you're a son or daughter, you get eternal mercy. You don't get God's wrath. If you think you're experiencing God's wrath, you're either not actually a son or daughter, or you're confusing it with the fact that he's just disciplining you. God, he holds mercy for his children forever. But he did say he took it from Saul. He didn't hold mercy for Saul forever. Why? Because Saul wasn't a legitimate son. We see no indication that Saul had a real relationship with God. The whole entire time the Bible talks about it. If we want the mercy of God, then we got to be children of God. And we see that when Saul wanted mercy from God, he was always doing it for selfish reasons because he wanted to keep his kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, two times in this verse, the word forever is used. Again, in verse 13, if you look back, the word is forever used again. Three times in these short few verses, what's the point? God's covenant lasts forever. That's point number three. 
God's covenant lasts forever. He wants them to know. He says it three times. Okay, Just in case you don't get me here or you misheard me the first time, I want you to know this promise is forever. Okay, It's forever, forever, forever. In other words, the covenant that God made to David, it's a forever covenant. Whether he dies, whether he sins, no matter what, the covenant still stands. We receive this forever covenant from the Lord through Jesus Christ. We benefit from this. He won't take away the promise. He didn't make it with his fingers crossed and say, maybe not for you. I promise if you're not for you. No, God so loves the world. He, he, he gave his only son. Uh, anyone who believes in him, everyone, whoever believes in him can be saved. And those that accept that salvation, it can't be taken away. There's no way to cancel it. It lasts forever. It's not like you get saved, then one day God says, you know, I'm tired of you. Or say this, you, you get to heaven one day, right? You've been spending like half of eternity with God. And God says, uh, you know what? I'm kind of sick of you being around. You're out. You're out. I'm going to kick you out of the kingdom. No, the covenant lasts forever, for eternity. That's why he says it three times. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 17 According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Remember at first Nathan said, okay, Dave, do it. <laughs> you know, go ahead and build the temple. And now he has to go back and say, probably maybe with his head down, I don't know. I'm just imagining that. Like, nah, bro, that's not how it's actually going to go down. Like, I got some good news and some bad news, right? Um, the good news is the Messiah is going to come from your line. Like, isn't that great? Bad news is he can't build the temple. Um, Anyways, this might have been a hard discussion. Maybe not. Regardless, Nathan is a prophet, so he speaks the word of God even when it's difficult. It goes on to say, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What does David do as soon as he hears that he received this amazing promise, this amazing covenant? It says he went and sat before the Lord. He went and sat before God. He went to spend time with the Lord, sitting at the Lord's feet in awe and admiration with gratefulness, thankfulness in our hearts. It's so essential. It's so important. It reminds me of the story of Mary and Martha and Luke chapter 10. And Luke chapter 10, if you remember the story, I'll read it for you. It's a short one. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was serving Jesus. Jesus. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus says, she's doing what she's supposed to be, and you're not doing what you're supposed to be. Why? Because you're distracted, and I want you to worship me. I want you to spend time with me. I want you to sit at my feet. The number one goal is for us to have a good relationship. I don't care what you do for me if there's no relationship there. Everything you do for me has to be rooted in that relationship, and it comes, the motivation comes from sitting at my feet. 
Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. Where do we find that love? By spending time with Jesus. Have you been sitting at his feet lately? With no distractions. Martha was distracted. Mary wasn't. She was focused. No distractions. Alone with the Lord. No kids. No TV. No cell phone. No nothing. Just time with Jesus. If you're not doing that, you have to make time to do that. It's essential to our faith. Jesus says, one thing is needed. One thing. That's it. I don't care what you do. If you don't sit by my feet and hear my voice, you're not doing the one thing I'm asking you to do. If that's not taking place, we're going to be disgruntled. We're going to be out of sorts. There's not going to be love. There's not going to be joy. There's not going to be peace. There's not going to be any of that. No fruit of the Spirit if we're not sitting at the feet of Jesus. We have to make time for it. So David, he comes. He sits at the feet of the Lord. Look what he says. I love this. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? David is so humbled by this. He understands, at least in part, the implications of this covenant. God, who am I? He still looks at himself as the little shepherd boy. Like, I'm just the guy. Like, I'm just the little shepherd. That's how he sees himself. He doesn't really realize how great he actually is. He has a sober mindset, a humble mindset. Who am I? God, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody, and you're telling me that the Messiah is going to come through my lineage. Imagine that. It won't happen now because it already happened. But imagine if God came to you and he said, hey, guess what? Jesus Christ is going to come through your lineage. Your great, 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 great grandson is going to be Jesus Christ. What? Are you serious? That's what's happening here. And David's going, what do you mean? There's going to be a perfect man, the Messiah that comes through my lineage? How is that even possible? See, God had blessed David already more than he could imagine. He gave him the kingdom, gave him a palace, gave him victory time and time again, gave him family, gave him so much. And then he gives him more. He gives him more. God wants to do that with each and every one of us. It says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, in Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, not only is he able... He's willing. He wants to continue to give us more and more and more. And it's not always what we think it's going to be. But it's always more than enough. So David, he receives this blessing with gratitude, with humility. The text continues in verse 19. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight. Like, this is small to you. Like, this is nothing. You making this promise is like not a big deal to you. But for me, this is a big deal. What's a big deal to us is not a big deal to God. He says, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now that phrase, is this the manner of man? It's more likely translated, is this the direction for all mankind? Okay, there's a recognition that he's having here. He's not saying like, is this like me? Like, uh, this is the mannerisms that I have, or this is the behavior that I have. Though when you look at the original language, that's not what he's saying. What he recognizes here is that this promise is to benefit all mankind. This promise literally is for all mankind. That's astounding. 
He likely made the connection between Abraham's promise and the promise that was made to him, that he would bless the nations through his seed. And he goes on. Verse 20. Now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant for your word's sake. And according to all your own heart, you have done all these things to make your servant know them. He says, for you, Lord God, you know your servant. You know me. You know my faults. You know my flaws. You know when I mess up. You're there all the time. Later on, I'll say, well, I can't even get away from your spirit. You're everywhere. You know everything about me. And you're still going to make this promise? You're still going to give me eternal life even though you know I'm this messed up? Yeah, that's the reality. God knows how ugly we are. He knows how ugly we are on the inside. He knows the ugliness that comes out on the outside even when we're by ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And even despite the fact that he knows the ugliest things about us, he says, yep, eternal covenant with you. This promise is for you. It's eternal See, David, he was so grateful for this promise. He recognized what God had done for him already, that you have brought me this far. You've already brought me this far. Now you're going to give me this. You're going to bring me farther, further. David doesn't minimize the blessing of God. He doesn't minimize this covenant that God made with him. He's grateful. Why? Because he realizes he deserves nothing. God knows who he is. He doesn't deserve a darn thing. And neither do we. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve the families that we have, the houses that we live in, the, the, the rooms that we live in, the beds that we sleep on. We literally deserve nothing in this world. God doesn't owe us anything. But sometimes we think we deserve something. David realized he didn't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything from you, Lord. And yet you're going to bless me with all of this. It's absolutely amazing. Entitlement's a huge issue. And right now, David didn't have it. Later on, we'll see David has entitlement. But as he responds to God, he doesn't. When we respond to God with even the simplest of blessings, there has to be that immense amount of gratitude because we don't deserve anything. What do we deserve? We deserve hell and death. That's what the Bible says. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's all we deserve. One sin, hell and death. That's what we deserve. But Jesus, he gives us grace. So I'm going to give you much more than that. I had a friend one time. He said, he was talking about like the baby boomers, how they destroyed his opportunity to buy a house. I go, bro, why do you think you deserve a house? Like why, why do you don't deserve anything? You don't deserve to own a house. Why would you even think that you're going to blame it on something that your parents did? It's absolutely absurd. We deserve nothing in this world. Yet God gives us so much. Second Samuel chapter 7. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the nation on the earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nation and their gods. For you have made your people Israel 
your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. There's no God like you. The Philistines are worshipped different gods. The Moabites, the Edomites, all these different people are worshipped different He says, there's no God like you. There's no God as great as you. You are the greatest. You are the sovereign, almighty God. And then he says, your people. Who is like your people? Like Israel. Whom you chose to redeem. Who is like Israel? There's no one like Israel. But why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose Israel instead of any of the other nations? I'll show you. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. You're the least. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It wasn't because you were great. It wasn't because you had a lot to offer. You were actually a weak nation and I chose you because I loved you. That's why he made that covenant with Israel. And that's why he makes a covenant with us. Not because we bring anything to the table. Not because we're some special human being. But because he loves us. And he chose Israel specifically also uh, for them to be a nation that, that represented his name. That represented his character. That lived according to his standard. They were literally supposed to be a light to the world. They were. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. To live a higher at a higher moral ground than the rest of the surrounding nations. But David, he also says this in verse 24, your people Israel, your very own people forever. The promises to Israel, at least some promises, were forever. People have come up with this um Theory called it's replace, it's replacement theology, where they say, um, God's promises to Israel no longer stand, and actually the church comes in and replaces Israel, and now God's promises that He made so many years ago to Israel, they no longer apply. Now they apply to the church. Like, dude, are you serious? That's not what the Bible teaches. The promises to Israel still stand. God still makes a covenant with Israel. The covenant, this Davidic covenant, it affects them. The new covenant, it affects them as well. We see at the end of time, after the tribulation, that the Israelites that are left, they're going to get saved. They're going to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, he's asking... Basically, the Romans, hey, did the word of God fail because now the church gets to enter into the new covenant and the Israelites are uh, seem to be rejected? But he says, no, 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 that's not so. That's not the way it is. In Romans chapter 11, really the whole chapter, we'll just read the first verse. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Certainly not. I haven't cast away my people. They're my people forever. I chose them as my people. Now the church gets to benefit from the promise that I made with the Israelites and they get to basically prematurely enter into that covenant because of what Jesus did on the cross. But the Israelites, they still are my chosen people, he says, forever. 
Verse 25. Almost there. Now, O Lord, God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. God made the promise, but David is praying that the promise is fulfilled. That's okay to ask God, Hey, the promises that you made to me, fulfill them. I want you to, didn't you say this to me? Not like, God, I'm holding you. To, you. You said this, you better. But no, in all reality, God, you promised this. I believe that you're going to do this. I want to see it happen. I want to see these promises fulfilled. But not only that, David understands the heart behind this promise. Verse 26, he says, so let your name be magnified forever. David isn't just asking God to fulfill this promise for his benefit. He knows this is for God's benefit. For God's name to be magnified. Fourth and final point. God's covenant magnifies his name. God's covenant magnifies his name. I don't think we think of this very often. But this is why God makes promises. He doesn't just make promises to keep them to us. He makes promises so that other people know he's faithful. So that other people know that God is a God that keeps his promise. Yahweh will keep his promise. He kept his promise to this person. Maybe he'll keep his promise to me. Yes, he absolutely will. Why? Because that's who God is. He's a promise keeper. Do you ever have that perspective? Maybe God's made specific promises to you. Maybe it's for a spouse. Maybe it's for a child. Maybe it's for a new job. Maybe it's for a ministry opportunity. I don't know what the promises God has made to you. God's made promises to me. Do you ever think of that? In the sense that God wants to fulfill this promise to me to reach other people. So that other people know that he's faithful. I was thinking about this as I was studying this. God promised me that I'd have a son. Okay, And I have, I have credit for this. Spoken from the pulpit. It's recorded before he was ever born. The Lord promised me I was going to have a son. And I said it. I was that confident about it. And then a couple minutes after... Um, Elizabeth got pregnant, lo and behold, right? And then one day she's at a pastor's uh, wives conference and she's worshiping and she felt the Lord speak to her. She didn't know she was pregnant. She didn't know at this point. The Lord speaks to her, you're pregnant and you're going to have a son. Crazy, right? So finally we go and we find out the gender and guess what? He's a son and now we have Jude. But God didn't make that promise to me just for me. I know he made that promise for me and gave me the faith to trust in the promise so that I could tell other people, hey, God actually told me that I'm going to have a son. So they recognize that God is a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who keeps his promises. I've been able to share that story in a uh, Redlands University, a secular, secular school, right? I've been able to share that twice. Our friend... Um, uh, our friend Allison, her mom Diane teaches a class there, a child development so uh, class. So we brought Jude there and they ask our story. And we always say, God promised us that we're going to have this boy. And we go into the story. It happens. It wasn't just for us though. Just as this promise to David wasn't just for him. So that your name can be magnified. That people know that you're faithful. And lastly, Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 28. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. 
Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Look what he says back in verse 28. You are God, and your words are true. I know your words are true because you are God. I know your words are true because your name is Yahweh. It's Hebrews chapter 6. Specifically speaking of the promise made to Abraham. Connects to promises across the board. In Hebrews chapter 6 is where we'll close. Verse 13, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Or in other words, he swore by his own name. When God could swear by nothing greater, he swore by his name. Why? Because his name is his character. We can trust God's promises because we can trust his character. That's who he is. He's a promise. If he says he's going to do it, he's absolutely going to do it. David knows that he's going to do it. You are true. Your promises are true. I know this is going to happen. He didn't question it. He trusted it. We have a great privilege of benefiting from the promise that God made to, uh, to, to David, the Davidic covenant. Whom, as we mentioned, Jesus Christ would ultimately fulfill in his kingdom, he'll establish forever. But how often do we consider that covenant? How often do we consider that promise? The promise of salvation. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Some of you maybe not as long. But the tendency can be over time that I just kind of, you know, I'm saved, right? I walk with Jesus and we don't think about what he did for us, the promise that he made for us, what awaits us. Eternal life with Jesus Christ. David, he didn't play it like that. He was thrilled. He was excited. He was so grateful. He sat at his feet, sat at the feet of the Lord and thanked him and praised him. God, thank you so much for your promise. We should be a people that do that same thing. So often we come to God in prayer. We ask him to change some things in our life or do something. Sometimes we thank him for the things in our life, which is great. But how often do we sit there at his feet and just thank him for salvation alone? For the promise that he made to us that we too will enter into eternal life. That's the type of person David was. Pray that be the type of people we are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this covenant that you made with David that we get to benefit from. Um, so amazing <laughs> and to see. Um, he had just a glimpse of how you were going to fulfill this. Lord, we know that there's going to come a day where you come back and you establish your kingdom on this earth that you rule and reign for a thousand years and then afterwards you establish your eternal kingdom. God, so we thank you for that. We thank you for the benefits that we get to receive because of the promise you made to David. I pray that we would walk through this week, walk through our lives with constant gratefulness. We need nothing more than your grace. Your grace is sufficient. Your salvation was enough. In Jesus' name, amen.